So this evening's talk um, is called The Everyday Sublime. And I'm going to start with a passage from a poem written by the, um, the poet Lucretius. Lucretius um, lived uh, about 50 BC, um, towards the end of the Roman Republic. And all we know about him is that he composed this poem. And it's called um, On the Nature of Things. And it's written from the perspective of uh, Epicurean philosophy. Uh, this is just a, a few lines. It's 7,000 lines. I'm only going to read you about 10. <laughs> Behold the pure blue of heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine if these were shown to men now for the first time, suddenly, and with no warning, what could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing. Nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight. Now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. This is a, effectively um, a thought experiment. And although Lucretius uses the, um, the rather classic image of sublimity, the night sky and the stars and the moon and the planets and the sun. I think it would be just as um, appropriate to um, give the example of sitting here in this room now. Imagine if this were shown to people now for the first time, suddenly and with no warning. This room, uh, these people these curtains and lights and whatever else is going on. If you Im imagine you'd never, ever experienced anything like this ever before and suddenly it was shown to you for the first time, what could be, more, what could be declared more wondrous than this miracle no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing. Nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. Now, however, he says, this is 50 BC, you know, 2,000 years ago, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They're so involved in sending a text message. <laughs> Um, I, I love that passage, and it, it captures for me, actually, as probably better than anything else, what is, uh, for me, the real heart or uh, pulse beat 
or texture or fabric of the experience of what we call meditation. It's very much uh, the experience of coming, and again quoting another poet, Eliot, uh, coming to see the world as though for the first time. Or in Zen they call it the beginner's mind. Seeing things for the first time. In other words, what... Um, I feel is distinctive not only about Lucretius uh, or Zen but certainly I feel probably most of the Buddhist early Buddhist tradition too is that we're not interested in trying to access some ultimate reality or truth something that is often suggested lies behind the veil of mere appearances uh, gaining a shattering breakthrough into something uh, radically other. Uh, and I think much of the mystical traditions, uh, not only in Christianity, but I think in other theistic uh, schools, tend to feel that the aim of contemplation or mystical experience is to gain insight into something that is entirely of another order. Now, we could interpret that to mean coming to see this world as though it were for the first time, but I feel that kind of language is misleading. It feeds that expectation that human beings have that this world is somehow not enough. It's somehow inadequate. It somehow uh, lends itself to be feeling bored or listless or restless or tired and we want something else and religious traditions uh, supply these things in Buddhism we might hear about emptiness or Buddha nature in other traditions it might be the true self or the true mind which you find also in Zen rather than coming to see what is happening right now with clear eyes, the doors of one's perception cleansed. And again, Lucretius's thought experiment, I think, is effective because he says, imagine you'd never ever seen this before or heard these birds before and suddenly you were exposed to them. How could you possibly want anything more than that? And I think this illustrates very beautifully um, the, the struggle we have, both yearning for some understanding or insight or enlightenment, and yet constantly being thrown back onto uh, you know, the immediacy and the stubbornness and the kind of, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, how do you say, the this experience that's so difficult to somehow penetrate. It feels somehow dull. We sit on a cushion for hours every day and although we're very earnest, I'm sure, there must be many moments in which you ask yourself, you know, why the hell am I doing this? What's this all about? You know, what's next? And that's the challenge. And that, I think, is also the koan, that is the huadu, the question that we 
confront the iron rod on which we chew. And I'd like to uh, name this experience as the, the everyday sublime. Sublime, which I'll talk about in a minute, but the everyday sublime, the one that's always here. I'm personally never been interested, and in, maybe I shouldn't say that, I'm not interested anymore in achieving um, any kind of uh, <clears throat> sustained introspective rapture or absorption in which the, uh, the sensory richness of experience is somehow uh, put to one side. I'm not remotely interested in visualizing reciting mantras, gaining out-of-body experiences, reading other people's thoughts, and so forth and so on. To me, that is a total distraction. Meditation for me is about embracing what is happening to this organism as it touches its environment in this moment. Again, quite simple, but as we've said before, not that easy. And I don't, however, reject the idea of the idea of the mystical. What I can't accept is the mystical is somehow concealed beyond or behind or below or above what is merely apparent. As I understand it, and I think I've feel supported in this by Lucretius, is that the mystical doesn't transcend the world, but it uh, saturates it. And to quote our friend Ludwig Wittgenstein once again, um, and I think this is from the, the, the Tractatus, his earlier work, 1921, he wrote, the mystical is not how the world is, but that it is which again I feel has powerful resonances with Lucretius. That the world is at all is the mystical. Now the term sublime, um, again it's often used in a rather trivial sense these days. Um, I've heard um, the movements of certain footballers described as sublime. But that wasn't how the word was originally intended to be used. Uh, sublime is a term that actually only came into use in our culture um, a couple of hundred years ago. And it was very much um, a key term for the romantic poets and philosophers. Uh, Keats, Coleridge, um, Wordsworth. Um, they sought out experiences of the sublime. And what they meant by the sublime was something that was simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. And to this end, Coleridge, for example, would hike up onto hills in the Lake District um, with a bottle of laudanum in one pocket and a bottle of brandy in the other, and he would wait for the most violent storms 
and then go out probably at night and try to somehow expose himself in an altered state of mind to something uh, both fascinating but at the same time terrifying. And in one passage, Coleridge describes the sublime as uh, that which has the power, um, that which is able to suspend the power of comparison. Suspend the power of comparison. In other words, it kind of brings the mind to a stop. Other writers describe the sublime as being excessive. Uh, It exceeds our capacity for representation. We can't put it into words. We can't conceptualize it. It's those experiences that go beyond what we habitually uh, are familiar with or pay attention to. These um, experiences somehow overreach us. They spill beyond the boundaries of our thought. They bring the calculating mind to a stop. They leave you speechless in a way. But for us who are very concerned with our, our place in the world, um, what people think of us, uh, how we uh, present ourselves, who want security and certainty and consolation, uh, the sublime tends to be banished to the margins, forgotten or reserved for you know, exceptional experiences. And the problem with that, although it might be a much more comfortable world to live in, it also tends to be a world that's rendered rather opaque and flat. And each day tends to get reduced to the the repetition of familiar actions and events, which are kind of blandly comforting, but are devoid of that intensity that at one level I think we deeply yearn for. So meditation, like what we're doing here, is, um, I feel, trying to come to terms with this condition in which we find ourselves. Uh, We feel somehow perhaps frustrated or limited or uh, cut off from life in some way. And this is one, and there's no doubt many other ways of uh, practicing or meditating or doing art or poetry or whatever, that somehow able, uh, enable us to gain at least a glimpse, a sense of another way of being in this world. Not being in another world, but another way of being in this world. But in order to do that, in order to uh, begin to open oneself to and encounter this everyday sublimity, which I think in Zen particularly they're very good at, a lot of these, these haiku in Japan, the, the um, opening your eyes to the cherry blossoms, to the autumn leaves, to the blades of the leaves of the bamboo, Although, unfortunately, that easily gets rather cliched, 
nonetheless, at their best, such poems evoke um, something uh, uh, transcendent in the midst of what is immediate. They enable us to look at the world afresh, with fresh eyes. So the question, therefore, is, well, okay, that sounds great, but how do you do it? And in many ways, I think this is a process of uh, dismantling, you know, piece by piece, step by step, meditation session by meditation session, the kind of perceptual conditioning that we're, in a sense, programmed in, either for biological reasons or cultural reasons or psychological reasons, that somehow insist and impose uh, a sense of oneself and the world as being essentially comfortable and permanent and solid and me, me mine. As we saw last time, the, the um, story with Ananda and his teacher telling him uh, how he's like Narcissus. Everything he looks at, he just sees a reflection of himself coming back. It's a closed world. And we seem to be somehow conditioned that way. There's uh, an enormous um, force behind the way we um, uh, are, are constantly in such a state. So the, the practice of meditation, um, or the pra practice for Lucretius of Epicurean philosophy, um, means to rather systematically um, turn our attention to what we tend to ignore or forget. In other words, we turn our attention to the changing nature of things. We turn our attention to the tragic dimension of life. We turn our attention to what is not me or mine. And although intellectually, um, you know, that doesn't sound, you know, terribly difficult, you can sit down and do it, the practice is one that seeks to um, familiarize ourselves with such a vision, not just at the level of the mind, but almost uh, viscerally. And so when we practice uh, mindfulness or vipassana meditation, we, we, we insist on just attending to the changing nature of what's going on. Again and again and again, we just notice that. Notice it. Or in the case of this Zen practice, we question it. What is it? What is this? Which again undermines or begins to erode uh, our convictions, our certainty of, oh, well, it's obvious, it's a tree. Um, it's a book, it's a cushion, it's a bowl of soup. I know that. But really, but what is this thing? How did it get here? So to me, this is another strategy. In fact, all these meditation approaches are different facets of a strategy of, of disentangling, of undoing, of deprogramming uh, a particular way of seeing the world. And because we've been 
conditioned so deeply to experience things this way, it's unlikely that we can just find the off switch. And, oh, wow, everything's now new and bright and mysterious and sublime. It doesn't work like that. There was a Chinese uh, Chan master of the last century called Xu Yun. And he had a phrase uh, which I always bring to mind. Um, he says, you have to cultivate a long, enduring mind. A long, enduring mind. In other words, you're in it for the long haul. The, this is a practice that in some ways is not going to deliver some quick result. This is a practice that in a way we'll probably have to uh, persist in as long as we're alive. And although there may be moments in which the mind opens, and there may be periods of our life in which we feel more vitally alert and present and alive, we're also aware of how that can close down again. That maybe Buddhist habits take over and we get locked into another set of conditioned perceptions and views. So all of this, in a way, is about the way we see the world, uh, the vision uh, that we seek to uh, work on and cultivate in a retreat such as this. And I'd like to look at a very early text, uh, again from the Pali Canon, where the Buddha um, defines what he means by sammaditi, usually translated as right view. I mentioned in my talk the other night that right is the wrong translation. or if I'm a little bit more charitable, um, it's not the best translation. The word sama, um, again, look it up in the Pali Dictionary if you don't believe me, uh, means complete or whole. And, for example, you have the expression uh, uh, sama sambuddha, which means a completely awakened one. It doesn't mean a rightly awakened one, as though you could somehow have a wrongly awakened one. And, and many, many, many examples. <clears throat> yeah, for some reason, uh, in English at least, uh, sama has become translated as right versus wrong. And I've always felt this gives a rather uncomfortable, moralistic tone to what's meant you know, being right and wrong. So, rather than right view, I'd rather say complete vision. Again, it's all very well to change the word, but nonetheless, I think we have to ask, well, what does it mean, complete vision? Complete, in what sense? The way I'd understand it is that, well, let us take the example of mindfulness. You have mindfulness, which is used as a technique that can be applied in healthcare, that can be applied in 
business, in leadership, it can be applied in military training. And it might come from Buddhism, it might use Buddhist uh, forms of meditation, but basically it's just a technique to achieve a particular short-term goal. And then you have Sammasati, which is the element within the Eightfold Path. And Samma, let's say complete, complete mindfulness is not the same as mindfulness used as a technique to achieve a particular short-term goal. Samasati, mindfulness is complete when it is integrated into a, a holistic vision or understanding or way of being in the world. So I take the word samma complete, not to refer to the mindfulness in and of itself, but to highlight the fact that it's a quality of paying attention that is integrated into the way we see things, philosophically perhaps, the way we think, the way we make decisions, the way we uh, make choices, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we apply ourselves, the way we um, uh, focus our attention. Mindfulness is integrated into a way of life. So in that sense, complete means integrated or integral. And happily, integral comes from the Latin integer, which means a whole. A whole number is an integer. So integral means whole in that sense. So we could say perhaps an integral vision. But let's for the moment just stick with the literal translation of complete. So the Buddha was staying at the town of Savati, which was his main base, and he was approached by a man called Kachanagota. We don't know who this is. And Kachanagota basically says, you say complete vision, complete vision. What do you mean by that? In what respects is your vision complete? And this is the Buddha's answer. He says, by and large, Kachana, this world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete intelligence has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete intelligence has no sense of it is about the world. Complete intelligence is samapanya. Again, sama, same word. Panya, usually translated as wisdom, but I think here it means more something like intelligence. Panya is not necessarily um, a, you know, a, a virtuous, wise, noble thing. It can be, it's the human capacity to discriminate, to differentiate, to discern. It's intelligence, basically, I think. If we see the arising of the world with clear, 
discernment, let's say. If you, in other words, when you see something coming into being, arising, like the beginning of a sound, of a rook, for example, you cannot then entertain the idea that it is not. It doesn't exist. And yet, when you discern with clear discernment the, the fading or the ceasing, the disappearing of something, you can't say, it is about that thing. There's something about language, and we saw this in the talk the other night too, that uh, provides us with a picture that holds us captive. In other words, we think things either are or are not. Either is or is not. Or being or not being. And that duality is built into the very structure of language itself. Um, in the te technical terminology, it refers to the, the law of the excluded middle. Something either is A or it is not A. So what the Buddha is talking about in this complete vision, this samaditi, this so-called right view, is um, to somehow experience the world in which you're no longer um, determined or, or, or uh, conditioned by the assumptions of, 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 of grammar, of language. It sounds, I think, for us today as a view of the world that understands life as process, that everything is in constant flux, um, constant change, giving rise, giving birth to one thing, which then becomes a condition that gives rise to something else, that nothing ever stands still, nothing is ever fixed, nothing is ever static. I mean, there are degrees, of course. But broadly speaking, we live in a highly contingent world. And this is not something we need to learn from old Buddhist texts. Uh, we just have to study modern biology. Uh, that, I think, in some ways reveals this, this interconnected web of life constantly evolving and changing and adapting and transforming in ways that are far more concrete and specific and, uh, and, 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 uh, and visible and discernible than the rather abstract language of, of these kind of uh, suttas. So complete vision uh, is a vision that is open to, that is sensitive to, that is um, uh, embracing uh, the flux of experience, uh, the tentativeness of experience, the contingency of experience. And again, this has strong resonances with ideas like impermanence and dukkha. Remember that dukkha, this difficult word to translate, but let's say suffering. Suffering is not the result of craving, which is a, a Buddhist dogma, but suffering is simply the, uh, the, the, the inevitable consequence of a world that doesn't stand still. There's nothing you can hold on to. You, we crave to have this and we crave to get rid of that and maybe for certain periods we get what we want but 
in the end, we either, either we get tired of it or bored with it, or it breaks down and falls apart. In other words, this is not the kind of place, this world, this biosphere, where permanent well-being is actually on the cards. It just doesn't, it's just, it's just not going to happen. And yet we find ourselves endlessly trying to, um, to get it by, you know, controlling situations, by possessing things and so forth and so on. So this complete vision is training us to attend to the world as a world of process, of change, and implicit within which is a sense of tragedy. I like the English word poignancy. There's something poignant about life. Um, a very good example of this that I heard in a talk once by Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, he, he commented on how you often go into a, a restaurant, let's say, these days, and you see a beautiful vase of flowers on the table. And as you get closer, you start getting a little bit suspicious to the point where you, 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 you touch it to see if it's real. And if you find out that actually it's a very clever cloth plastic copy, you're disappointed. Now that's odd in a way, because if we really wanted something permanent, bingo. Perfect reproduction, plastic flowers. But we don't like plastic flowers. <laughs> as soon as we're, we're, um, we discover that they're not real, quote-unquote, we're disappointed. And this shows, I think, that <clears throat> in a way, beauty, um, particularly the beauty of the natural world or the sublimity of the natural world, um, contains or requires the reality of decay and death. The beauty lies in the fact that it doesn't last. I've always found that a very, very insightful way to somehow um, grasping what we might call the poignancy of life. It's not dukkha. I mean, you could say, oh, it's dying, it's going to disappear, isn't that awful? But that's precisely what allows it to be as beautiful and as moving and as touching and as, as sublime, let's say, uh, as it in fact is. And then the Buddha goes on, he says, By and large, Kachana, this world is bound to its prejudices and habits. But such a one who has complete vision does not get caught up in the habits, fixations, prejudices, or biases of the mind. He is not fixated on myself, on me. He does not doubt that when something is occurring, it is occurring. And when it has come to an end, it has come to an end. His knowledge is independent of others. In these respects, his vision is complete. So the linkage here seems to be that as long as we're locked into the it is, it, it, it is not, that kind of duality, then the next step is that we become 
attached or fixated or prejudiced into what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is mine, what is not mine, and we get locked into a particular frame of mind that in many ways is a frame of mind that is alienated, that is severed from the actual flux and texture uh, of life itself. So this complete vision is opening up to life itself. And in this regard, I think it's perhaps quite clear that when we ask, what is this? We are undermining uh, the conviction that it, it is this, or it is that, or it is not this, or it is not that. The questioning, perplexity, um, is a suspension of it is and it is not. I remember when I lived in Korea in the monastery there, um, I heard about a contemporary a Korean Zen master who used to um, uh, ask his students, he said, he, um, this, is, this is how it was quoted to me, he would say, if you say this is a table, I will give you 30 blows. If you say this is not a table, I will give you 30 blows. What is it? <laughs> and this, I think, captures quite well the linkage between this um, complete vision, which is, no, which is no longer thinking in terms of it is or it is not. It is a table. It's not a table. And it throws you into this a suspension of belief or disbelief and leaves you with a sense of being puzzled and perplexed. Now, the, the early Pali texts don't take it through to that point. But what I like about Zen is that it actually teases out the, um, the experiential implications of not thinking anymore in terms of it is or it is not. It's throwing you into a kind of a dilemma where you can't get out. Can't say it is, can't say it's not. What is it? I later discovered that this was actually a, a riff on a 9th century koan that was um, uh, coined by a Chinese a Chan master called De Shan. And De Shan says, he says it slightly more cryptically, he says, if you speak, you get 30 blows. If you don't speak, you get 30 blows. So in other words, you ask a question, and if you say something, I'm going to hit you. If you don't say anything, I'm going to hit you. It's the same going beyond this dichotomous way of relating to the world. So the aim of this practice, or the aim of a, a teacher like Deshan, um, is somehow to short-circuit uh, the linguistic habit of jumping to the conclusion it is or it is not. And as we, as, as we cultivate this, um, as is it were, we kind of give up trying to get an answer. That leaves one suspended, as it were, 
in a kind of unknowing perplexity. If you think about a question, any question, uh, its flip side is necessarily a condition of not knowing. So, for example, if I don't know where um, Exeter is, I really don't know where Exeter is. Let's imagine that's the case. Um, then when I ask someone sincerely, where is Exeter? Implicitly or tacitly, I'm saying, I don't know where Exeter is. I don't know. So to ask a question, what is this, is silently to acknowledge that you don't know. So one thing we could actually explore in this practice, and I might talk about this tomorrow morning, instead of asking, what is this? Every now and again, we can just say to ourselves, with the same kind of, 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 of openness and stillness, just utter the words, I don't know. And rest in that unknowing. So it seems that part of the idea of a complete vision is, uh, on the one hand, a willingness to be confused, to wonder what is going on, to be perplexed, and at the same time, to rest in a, a really honest not knowing, an unknowing. And rather than resist the unknowing, and again, our whole culture is not, Western culture doesn't celebrate not knowing. Um, we're educated in exactly the opposite direction. Knowledge. We have to know things. We pass exams, which means we know what we're talking about. That's how you get your credentials. That's how you get respect. That's how you get a job. If you apply for a job and say, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, deeply, I just don't know how to do this. <laughs> Chances are someone else will get the post. <clears throat> so it goes more... It, and I think it goes, it goes further than this. It's not, we're not talking here just about some uh, inner state of mind. We're actually talking about um, finding a way of revealing the world as questionable, as unknown, as mysterious, as sublime. Sublime, remember, uh, exceeds our capacity for representation. It's fascinating and it's terrifying. It's kind of scary not knowing. It's scary asking questions. But at the same time, it can be profoundly intriguing. It can be, one can have a passionate inquiry about something, and yet the unknowing and the uncertainty that's required can sometimes be rather unsettling. And this, I think, is... Um, uh, implicit in the way in which uh, Martine and I were taught. Um, one of the things our teacher used to say a great deal, our teacher was a man called Kuzan Sunim, and he used to say that the true meditator is someone who considers the Hwadu, 
Huadu means, let's say, the question. Huadu literally means the, the gist of the koan. Koan is the story, Hui Neng and Hui Zhang having this exchange. But the Huadu, the gist of that story, it's a Chinese literary term. Um, the Huadu is the question, what is this? That's the gist of the story. So the true meditator, according to our teacher, was someone who considers the Huadu, the question, as his very life. And this is a quote from one of his talks. When going, he said, the Huadu goes. When coming, the Huadu comes. When eating, the Huadu eats. When sleeping, the Huadu sleeps. Even when shitting, you must investigate earnestly, never letting the Huadu out of your mind to the point where it seems that the Huadu is shitting. Um, Zen has a predilection for scatology, it seems. Um, Our teacher used to repeat this again and again and again and again. And I, I take this to mean that at a certain point in the practice of Zen, or Son, the Huadu, the question, ceases to be purely a subjective disposition of doubt or a question that one poses in the privacy of one's mind. And it starts to include the totality of what's taking place at any given moment. So when we say, what is this? We're actually just vocalizing um, a sense of the sheer strangeness of what's going on before we make the division into subject and object. And again, this comes back to an idea of of non-duality, in a way. Uh, Before we think, I am aware of X, in that sort of phenomenological sense, this being in the world hyphenated, a la Heidegger, um, the totality is the Huadu. The totality of being here, sitting in this room, listening to the rooks and the crows, all hyphenated. That's the Huadu. That's the question. And I think that over time this begins to happen anyway that we cease to get so concerned with this question as a kind of a puzzle or a problem that we have to figure out. And it becomes much more a sort of uh, a reflex of our experience at any given moment. It becomes the sort of the flavor or the, the inflection of, uh, of our experience of life as such. Instead of experiencing the world as as this and that and that thing over there and all that looks nice and that doesn't. Before you get into that habit of mind, I mean, the word huadu actually literally means the head of speech. And our teacher used to describe that as that, 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 that understanding of yourself and the world before you think before you speak, what is it, he would say? Before you get caught up in ratiocination, thinking, uh, speculating, having opinions, what is that? 
So in that sense, the whole uh, conceptual structure of the meditator, the meditation, and the object of meditation begins to break down. And we just sort of settle into this sort of um, all-enveloping sense of the questionableness, the strangeness, the mysteriousness, the oddness, the ineffability, or whichever word we prefer, of this. And Teshan, who the, the thir, thir, if you speak you get 30 blows, if you don't speak you get 30 blows. Uh, in another text he says, what is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. So again, he poo-poos this rather highfalutin language of mystery. It's about breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. In other words, it's nothing exotic or um, spiritual. It's just coming to terms with your ordinary life right now. Ordinary Zen, as someone put it. Total ordinariness. And yet that ordinariness is the most extraordinary thing there is. And I'll end with um, another quotation from Lin Chi, or Rinzai, from his record. Fellow monks, he says, you lug this arms bag and this sack of shit that is your body and rush off on side roads looking for Buddhas, looking for the Dharma. But right now, all this dashing and searching you're doing, do you know what it is you're looking for? It is vibrantly alive, yet has no root or stem. You can't gather it up. You can't scatter it to the winds. The more you search for it, the further away it gets. But don't search for it, and it's right before your eyes. It's miraculous sound always in your ears. But if you don't have faith, you'll spend your hundred years in wasted labor. Okay. Um, we have a little bit of time. If there's any uh, any questions or comments, yes, Annette. Um, <coughs> I'm with this kind of fascination and terror um, that you've been talking about. Um, I've had to experience since I've been here kind of real because I do the discombobulation of what's like not knowing, and it's great here because you know there's so much to fall back into. But I wonder if You've got anything to say about, you know, in everyday life, kind of living with <laughs> the fact that, you know, I have to put food on a table. And that, you know, in another aspect, well, that, that's the trouble really, you know, it can easily become another aspect of my life um, where I'm actually inquiring in this way. So there's something about bringing, bringing it more into my everyday life. Yeah, well, this is, a, I mean, this is a question, actually, that um, uh, a lot of the monks used to ask our teacher in Korea, too. 
And uh, he, didn't, he couldn't quite see why it was a problem. <laughs> um, and I think what that uh, showed, at least I think it showed it to me, is that um, he didn't, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't, you know, it's, it was so integrated into his life, it just was, this perspective was simply where he lived from. And I think the, it's true, though, when you're in a highly contrived environment like a Zen retreat, um, you're, you're silent and there's a schedule and da-da-da, um, you can quite quickly get into a frame of mind that you can't quite imagine having when you need to put the breakfast on the table at home and there's Radio 4 going and you've got to get out the door at 5 to 9. Um, but, and it may be that there is a, a, a kind of disjunction, a kind of a, a conflict between you know, having to do your daily things and trying to remain in a state where there's no is or is not. But I feel that as one uh, uh, sort of begins to sort of get familiar, get a taste for this kind of approach, um, it, it, sort of, it sort of seeps into your, into, into your body almost, such that it doesn't mean that you can only do these practices when you're in a cave or something. But in fact, uh, very much, um, uh, th this kind of perspective becomes, perhaps the word, the best word, is something like a sensibility. And the fact is that, you know, we are, you know, we have responsibilities and we're ethical people and we have our duties and we're going to do them anyway. I don't think you need to be too worried that when you get back to your home, you suddenly become totally dysfunctional because you've been on a Zen retreat. Uh, it's unlikely that's going to happen. We, we, I wouldn't be too worried about that. Um, but what you might be able more and more to bring to you know, your daily dealings and work and, and so on um, is perhaps a greater openness, um, a, a tendency not to to catch yourself when you get locked into a particular opinion when you're having an argument with someone, um, to be somewhat rather more tolerant of others, to not feel that the world has to conform to the way you want it to be. And on many, 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 many little, 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 little ways like that, I think that this kind of questioning and perplexity and sense of wonder begin to infuse how you get about doing your daily life. And it, it is valuable, I think, in that regard, to live with, uh, to, like living in the monastery in Korea. Um, wasn't just about having long retreats and doing lots of meditation, but it was also being around people who'd been doing this kind of thing for years, especially the teachers, and, uh, and being with them in their ordinary daily existence. And that was, in a sense, as much a teaching as the formal lectures to see how, you know, it is embodied, it's enacted uh, in, in daily life. And that's the real practice to me. It's about finding a balance. Uh, on the one hand, uh, valuing, you know, these, you know, quite radical ideas in a way, and certainly not 
the sort of conventional notions you'll find in everyday society. But that doesn't mean that they're somehow opposed or uh, inconsistent with leading an ordinary life. And I find that, you find that a lot in the Zen texts. Uh, you find that the Zen master is often a very ordinary kind of guy. Uh, and I think that possibly comes from Taoism. The, the, the Taoist sage in China is somebody who goes about his business and nobody even notices him. He's the little guy who's making his sandals down in a shack by the river. And as Lao Tzu says, and um, people say, hey, things are going really well around here. <laughs> and what they don't notice is because there's a, there's a Taoist sage down by the river making sandals. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't take that too literally, but the basic point is that if we could learn to live in a way that's more, uh, more attuned to the actual mystery of life itself, if we could be satisfied with simple things, if we could uh, celebrate uh, the, you know, just having a cup of tea, another typical Zen example, and again, that doesn't have to be in a beautiful Ming Dynasty bowl with matcha. It can be a good old mug of British rail. But that every detail of life somehow starts to become more intriguing and strange and wondrous and uh, impermanence too. Just to, 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 the more that you attune yourself to impermanence, the more you, you value everything. Because it's going to fade, it's going to disappear. So that, I think, is, the, is, 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 is an answer to that question. But the only way it can really be answered is by your trying it out and seeing how, in reality, you can sort of bring these two approaches together and see how easily, when you get back into the world of familiarity and habit, all that just takes over. As the Buddha said, you know, when we get bound to the habits and the biases and the fixations and the prejudices of the mind. Boom. Dead easy. We do it all the time. And it is a challenge. It's not easy by any means. But at some level, you know, that, that is really the, the crux of this practice. It's not, I mean, here it's pretty easy to do it. The real challenge is to bring it into, into everyday life. At the back? Yes. Um, I've never actually brought this up, so I, I, I sort of, uh, I ask, I bring it up in trepidation and make a fool of myself. Um, after meditating for many years, I don't think I'm completely free of doing something in order to get a desired result. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 it expresses itself in all sorts of departments of my life, to be honest. But then there's another movement back. Um, I feel strongly that I'm trying to recapture a moment in childhood. And it, 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 it's something that may sound banal. Uh, I, my most cherished moments were at the seaside. And I was looking at a starfish. And in French that's called Etoile de Mer. And I was trying to work out Etoile de Mer and I'm wanting something up there, uh -huh. which is yet another etoile. And I feel to this day that the minute that this thing was named, I lost something. Mm. And that for me, I, I remember this is, I didn't know the word sublime at the time, but it was a moment, it was a moment of significance. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So the problem I have, uh, people keep saying, I don't say this stuff, but just let go of the past. You have to always let go of the past in order to be free. Um, sounds good. Uh, I wouldn't say that, to be honest. I think the, par the, the problem with the past is not that it's... it's, it's not, not, the past is simply our life. And it's where, you know, we've learned so many things. And the past has, in, you know, inevitably been that which has pointed us to where we are now, has brought us to this moment. And there is probably lots of confusion, but also lots of insight in our past. Uh, the, 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 the problem with the past is we become preoccupied with it and we constantly try to repeat it. And this would be my business with the starfish. Is it a starfish? Etoile de mer? Yeah, starfish, yeah. Um, uh, is that we have an idea of what it is that we are aspiring for. And the problem is that idea, however important it may have been in the past, however important that experience may have been in the past, uh, the way we represent itself, the way we represent it to ourselves now, probably is not exactly a uh, perfect uh, reflection or image of that experience. So I think we have to somehow learn to, to, to celebrate and value those moments, but at the same time, in celebrating them, to recognize that they're also an inspiration to take us into an unknown. I think to, to, the idea of de deleting them from experience is absurd. We can't do that. It's there. It's probably in your neural network somewhere. It's a given. And therefore, it's not about rejecting it or forgetting it or letting go of it, but actually you know, being inspired by it but being inspired in such a way that you look to this moment, to this starfish or the equivalent, and seek, as it were, um, a way of being with it, a way of opening your mind and your heart to what's going on, uh, such that you no longer have to think about the starfish anymore. We'll stop here. Thank you. Uh, we'll have our um, next session in about 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.